This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. We're kicking off 2023 with a replay of some of the podcast's most memorable moments from the past year. Aphasia garnered public attention, and the opioid crisis remained in the headlines last year. SLPs joined the podcast to address how their work intersects with these high-interest stories. Plus, in the spirit of new beginnings, we'll hear two stories of SLPs who made big career changes. We're revisiting highlights from 2022 on ASHA Voices. Support for Asha Voices comes from Power Diary, a complete practice management system, perfect for speech, language, and hearing professionals. Head on over to www.powerdiary.com to learn more about the 100 powerful features that can benefit you and your practice. Join a live demo or start a free trial today at www.powerdiary.com. You may recall that Bruce Willis stepped away from acting earlier this year. In March, his ex-wife, actor Demi Moore, announced the reason for his leave aphasia. The language disorder is often but not always associated with strokes and traumatic brain injuries. Among the many people sharing their reactions to the news was former U.S. Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. Giffords also has aphasia. She developed it following an assassination attempt in 2011. Gifford's Washington Post op-ed is titled, Aphasia Makes It Hard for Me to Speak, But I Have Not Lost My Voice. In the article, Giffords gives a special shout-out to her SLP, Fabi Hirsch. Fabi is CEO and Director of Clinical Services for the nonprofit Friends of Aphasia, which she co-founded with Gabby Giffords. I spoke with Fabi in April. Aphasia is when someone loses the ability, or at least part of the ability, to communicate. And often we think of that just in terms of speaking, but it can also impact a person's ability to take information in, so comprehending when others are speaking, and also reading and writing. But the important thing to note is that it's an impairment of communication versus an impairment of cognition. So the cognitive skills, the thinking skills of someone who has aphasia, those are typically still intact, strong as ever. It's really just the language piece that's impacted by aphasia. Part of the reason that we're having this conversation is the recent headlines around Bruce Willis. His ex-wife, Demi Moore, wrote, quote, Bruce has been experiencing some health issues and has recently been diagnosed with aphasia, which is impacting his cognitive abilities, end quote. You're saying these are separate issues, perhaps. Yeah. So, you know, it's really hard to know what's going on there, and I certainly don't want to speculate at all. But certainly we, as speech pathologists, who work with people who have aphasia always really want to make that distinction between the language piece and the cognition piece. And a big part of that is because you can imagine when somebody's trying to communicate and the wrong word comes out or they haven't quite picked something up correctly when somebody was talking to them. And so they respond in a way that doesn't seem quite right, just simply because they haven't gotten the message in correctly. Those can often really look like a cognitive problem, right? That the person doesn't have the thinking skills quite intact. So we're often trying to clarify that distinction because People who have aphasia typically have those thinking skills, those cognitive skills all intact. And 
want to ensure that people understand that and recognize that it's just the struggle with getting to the words, that all those thinking skills are there and they are able to make their decisions and do all those important tasks. It's just a matter of how to accommodate the language problems. But that being said, there are different causes of aphasia Predominantly, it's a result of a stroke or a traumatic brain injury. But there is a type of aphasia called primary progressive aphasia. And in that case, the parts of the brain responsible for language deteriorate. And as they increasingly deteriorate, the language skills are impacted. And you see very typical aphasia types of difficulties or problems. So word finding difficulties and comprehension difficulties, hard time making sentences sometimes. But as the disease progresses, and other parts of the brain are impacted, you see the cognitive types of difficulties you might expect that go along with brain degeneration. So things like memory difficulties might start showing up later. And things like not being able to manage your daily activities. Um, But that's not to say at all what Bruce Willis and his family might be dealing with. We have no idea. But certainly, the types of things we see in aphasia are sometimes misconstrued as cognitive difficulties. But there is a type of aphasia that does have a cognitive component. But without knowing more, all I can say is that we are so thankful for Bruce Willis and his family being so brave to share his aphasia diagnosis with the world. And our hearts really just go out to him and his family. Aphasia is a very difficult thing to be diagnosed with and to live with. And I'm hoping that the awareness that comes from them being so brave allows other people to recognize that they're not alone and to seek out services that are available in their communities. I want to talk about that awareness. Your client and partner at Friends of Aphasia, Gabby Giffords, has been open about her experience with aphasia. Her op-ed is just one example of this. When she attended the 2012 ASHA convention, she accepted the Annie Glenn Award with her husband, Mark Kelly. Um, Thinking of this and the recent appearance of Bruce Willis in the headlines that you just mentioned, I understand that part of the mission of the nonprofit Friends of Aphasia is to increase awareness and education. How important is it to have a recognizable name or face for aphasia? I think it is really important for the word aphasia to be put out into the spotlight. And I think maybe the only way that that really happens is when people can see somebody who they admire and want to know more about that that person is living with aphasia and kind of prompts a desire to have a more in-depth understanding about something when it impacts somebody who they feel like they admire and respect and have followed and are familiar with, even if it's just from seeing someone on a screen, for example, with Bruce Willis. You know, often people don't learn about aphasia until it directly impacts them or a family member. And this is sort of a broader way. People 
are learning about aphasia because it impacts somebody who they feel they know, although certainly not as directly as maybe a family member. Does having someone who other people are familiar with, do you think it means something to people with aphasia? How do they react to seeing this news or to seeing this news being covered? So I think all of our group members at the Aphasia Center of Tucson reacted in a positive way to the announcement in so much as really wanting to feel supportive and feeling very compassionate towards learning of another person living with aphasia. Because I think that is one of the big values of our aphasia groups is just being with other people who have aphasia. So being in a place where everyone really understands it, to be able to expand that understanding into the more general population, I think is really valuable. So that when somebody is out having a conversation or interacting as best they can with somebody, now to be able to indicate that they have aphasia or show a card that shows that they have aphasia, all of a sudden there's a greater level of understanding because the name, the word aphasia has been out in the more popular media, I guess. And so more people just understand. And I can just give an example. Somebody asked me recently what I do, and I mentioned my work with Friends of Aphasia. And I was able to say, so, you know, aphasia, you may have heard the recent announcement from Bruce Willis and his family. And Right away, people were really drawn in and wanted to talk more about it and were very interested in what we do and very excited to hear that we have a resource in our community to help people living with aphasia. So I do think it helps me increase awareness locally by having the name aphasia, the word aphasia, out in the public eye. This is a condition that affects 2 million people. So to those 2 million people, I'm sure that's appreciated. Yeah, so 2 million people just in the U.S. and actually likely many more than that. But certainly it is not well known, but it is not rare by any means. It's more common than Parkinson's disease. It's more common than multiple sclerosis. Yet we still struggle with getting people to understand and recognize what aphasia is. I closed our conversation by reading a quote from Gifford's Washington Post op-ed. Giffords wrote, quote, My message for Bruce Willis and for everyone out there struggling with aphasia or any other communication disorder is that you're not alone. I'm here for you. We're here for each other. And together, we're going to get through this and be stronger for it. End quote. I asked Fabi what advice she might give people who want to support those with aphasia outside of the office of an SLP. I would strongly recommend that people try to find resources in their communities. And that can be as simple as typing in aphasia and Tucson to find friends of aphasia here. But in each of their communities that they look to find the resources that are available to them. And then on the national and international levels to seek out the resources that are available from organizations like the National Aphasia Association. They have a search tool to help people find 
resources in their own communities, as well as resources that are available more generally across the U.S. Find a slightly longer version of this conversation on the ASHA Leader website. While you're there, you'll see links to the ASHA Practice Portal and the ASHA Evidence Map, where you can find more information about aphasia. That's at on.asha.org slash podcast. Coming up in the second half of the episode, we'll hear from an SLP studying the effects of prenatal opioid exposure and two SLPs who decided to take a chance and do something new in their careers. Support for ASHA Voices comes from Power Diary. Work smarter, not harder. Power Diary is the complete practice management system for speech, language, and hearing professionals. Offering more than 100 powerful features, including appointment scheduling, client messaging, soap notes, telehealth portal, payment integrations, and much, much more. Let Power Diary simplify and streamline your day-to-day operations so you can take care of clients, not admin. Join a live demo or start a free trial today. Learn more at www.powerdiary.com. In our first episode of 2022, we kicked off a series looking at where the opioid crisis intersects with the work of CSD professionals. We spoke with a parent of a child who was exposed to opioids, and audiologists who told us about the overlap in people who seek hearing care and those at risk for opioid misuse. We also heard from researchers, like this conversation with SLP Pam Holland at Marshall University, about the effects of prenatal opioid exposure in the schools. For the preschool population, I think what we're finding is attention, impulsivity. A lot of our kiddos are struggling to learn because they're always on the go and they're having challenges with focusing. So they're sensory seekers. In terms of the impulsivity, sometimes what we're finding is little ones do something, what we generally would call a behavior. And then as soon as they do it, they regret that because they didn't mean to hit that kiddo or they didn't mean to bite. And they just are struggling with the cognitive ability to have impulse pulse control. And so from a preschool level, those are some of the things that we're saying. In addition to what we're all as speech language pathologists used to saying, and that would be, you know, some late talkers, some kiddos that are presenting with some idiosyncratic speech sound disorders, inconsistencies, as well as inability to hold on to perhaps some of the skills that have been taught in speech therapy. So they have a skill set one minute and it's gone the next. For school age, we're definitely seeing that very similar things, but, you know, the social emotional regulation is becoming a challenge for classroom teachers as well as counselors, psychologists, and speech language pathologists. And so I think dealing with, again, like I said, a large group of children, that can be a challenge for for any child, but certainly for those who perhaps may not have the neurodevelopmental regulatory system that allows them to manage varying environments. So we're seeing kiddos who are acting out, as teachers would describe them, or presenting behaviors that contribute to classroom challenges, uh, not just for that child, but for all of the children in the classroom. Yeah, I think that uh, at fourth, fifth grade is academically, we know when children are 
provided the opportunity to be a little bit more independent in their learning. And, and some of our kiddos and the researcher was suggesting that kiddos are, are having a, a difficult time with this. One of the other things I'd like to, to say is that the skills tend to be fairly splintered. And so splintered effects are also being evidenced in what our speech language pathologist reported in our focus group. You just mentioned a focus group. Who's in the focus group? We had uh, three separate focus groups. And I should say that this research was funded by the Department of Education in West Virginia. And we reached out to speech language pathologists working in the schools and just said, we want to learn a little bit more about what you're seeing so that we can develop some ideas on how to help. Um, This is uh, specific to opioid exposure. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, the research team here at Marshall, we're at the university setting. We work in an outpatient clinic and we don't have boots on the ground in the schools. But what we do find and what we have found in our university clinic is, you know, the population that we're serving has a new family dynamic. We're seeing foster families come in and we're seeing grandparents come in and bringing their children. We're seeing different foster families. We're seeing breaks in therapy sessions or therapy times because kiddos are moving from one place to another. And so we recognized it here at the university, but we also wanted to see what what does that look like in the in the school setting? You know, are our school SLPs seeing similar things that we're seeing here at the university clinic? So we set out to talk to those speech language pathologists that are working in the schools and we we hosted three separate focus groups, one on campus, one at our state conference, and another virtually secondary to COVID hitting, and really just asked them questions. And so all of the SLPs were uh, open and shared with us that their caseloads are more challenging, uh, that not just that the caseloads are increasing and they're getting more referrals, but that the skill sets and the needs of the children are more intense and in areas that they're not usually used to providing services for. And that would be emotional regulation. And that was one of the biggest themes from our our focus groups is, you know, the speech language pathologists were, were struggling because instead of working on goals that were established in an IEP that relate to language or speech sound production or literacy, they just really wanted to talk about what was going on at home or they were spending so much time with regulating the child's behavior that by the time the child was regulated and in a position to address some of the the activities or the goals for the day, it was time to go back to class. And so I think the biggest theme was we need more resources and we need more education in this new presentation of a child that really has gone beyond our scope of a practice of what we used to think in the schools. Mm-hmm. Some of the characteristics that you're mentioning, these aren't necessarily specific only to prenatal opioid exposure. So how can someone determine if what they're seeing is prenatal opioid exposure or is coming from someplace else? That's the million dollar question. (laughs) Um, And another reason that we wanted to do our research, we believe and we're taught as speech language pathologists that is that, you know, to ask ourselves, what's the etiology? We have to move past the first layer of why and continue past why, why, why. And that that is, again, one of the reasons we started um, to ask that question and to learn a little bit more. I, I would say one of the biggest challenges that we're finding is that we 
when you're looking at a child that's in the school system, quite often we don't have their medical information. And all, or at least all of their medical information. And so it's hard. In, in our focus groups, one of the questions was not just related to the children that you know have been exposed, but the children that you suspect have been exposed to, to opioids. That in and of itself is pretty murky because, you know, that doesn't really bode well for etiology. But some of the SLPs are saying, you know, we suspect this based on what we know about, you know, previous children in their family. The answer to your question is we we really don't know medical information when they come to the school. And, and somehow I think we need to change that. We definitely know when a child has diabetes. We, we know when a child has an EpiPen. Why wouldn't we want to know if a child was prenatally exposed? And if indeed, those behaviors that we're seeing in the classroom are related to that. However, it doesn't change the immediate. And so that's why I think talking about whether the child was exposed or whether we suspect the child was exposed, it it doesn't change the ultimate behavior. And so I think that while it is important to state that, and it might be important to know, um, you know, where this child has been, but really the most important thing is to know what we're seeing and why we're seeing it and how we can address it in the current environment that they're in. And so, you know, I don't believe in labels. And I think a lot of people in the, in the schools and, and parents and grandparents don't are not forthcoming in that information. But I do believe that the more we reduce stigma associated with substance use disorder, the more likely we're going to be able to move forward with understanding the etiology if, if indeed that is the case. Since this episode was published, Pam says her team began collaborating with the Marshall University School of Medicine's neonatology team. She says they'll be collecting data on the speech-language skills of children who are exposed to opioids prenatally, some of whom were provided medication for withdrawal and some of whom weren't. Pam continues to present on CSD and children with opioid exposure, founder at the 2023 Kentucky Speech-Language Hearing Association Convention in February, and at the online April Celebrating Connections Conference, a program of West Virginia Early Childhood Training Connections and Resources. Find the full conversation with SLP Pam Holland on our website at on.esha.org podcast. We're rounding out the year in review with two more stories, and fitting for the new year, there are stories of change. In September, ASHA Voices joined the ASHA Leader Magazine and Leader Live website in featuring stories of audiologists and SLPs making career changes. These stories examine the often surprising mid-career moves CSD professionals made. Authors and guests shared how they found their new path and what sparked the change. We'll hear from two of them now. SLP Amy Crooks is among those career changers. Amy has 25 years of clinical experience, but also more than 15 years of experience working in the insurance field. If you're wondering who is reviewing your documentation, one of those people might be Amy. She works for Magellan Healthcare, reviewing paperwork and claims. Her story of change begins when she was working in a clinical setting and began to feel the effects of burnout. It just stopped being a career I loved and turned into a job I didn't want to do anymore. So I knew I needed to find something else, but the big question was what kind of job could offer me a similar salary using my clinical experience and education without doing direct patient care. Amy wasn't aware of positions like the one she has today. That is until one day when she received a phone call that changed everything. Amy's call came from Blue Cross, who was reviewing paperwork Amy had submitted. It was on that call that Amy asked a question 
and the voice on the line would reveal a new path. She introduced herself as an SLP, and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so after we finished discussing the patient's case, I asked her if she got that kind of a job. And we talked about it for a little bit, and then she said that she was leaving the position to move back home and asked if I was interested. And I thought, this is perfect timing. So I went for it. Amy got the job. She says she was nervous but learned a lot from the position, staying with Blue Cross for a decade before joining Magellan. But it's important to note those early parts of Amy's career, the time she spent as a clinician, they inform her work even to this day. Absolutely, absolutely. I have had a wide array of patient settings that I've worked in, ages, uh, populations, and I have 25 years of experience implementing and developing treatment plans. I've assisted with the patient dynamics and overall interdisciplinary programs. The clinical experience is really key to make sure that you get it right on the reimbursement end. Amy notes that an SLP reviewing paperwork knows exactly what to look for in the notes. At some point, the patient has to be represented on paper to be reimbursed. And if the documentation isn't clearly stated and isn't well-defined and specific, that's actually a disservice to the patient. We need to work together as SLPs to make sure that they're represented and that whoever is on the other end looking at the reimbursement aspect can understand what's going on with that patient so that the patient can get the services that they need. This story begins with Amy feeling the effects of burnout. The question is, ultimately, did the move work for Amy? The answer seems to be yes in this case. I love my job again, and I call it the second phase of my career. What takeaways does Amy have to offer other SLPs? For any SLPs who are considering a role as a prior authorization clinical reviewer, she recommends getting as much clinical experience as possible and working with different age groups and in different settings. She says her job today is on the computer, and it can be hard to step away from patient care. But she adds, If you really are ready to give up that patient contact, then this is something that is challenging and It's a wonderful way to make a career change that's still in our field. Read a blog post from Amy on the ASHA Leader website. It's titled, What Do Insurers Look For in Your Claims? Find the link at on.asha.org slash podcast. Now, we're going to hear our final story of the episode. Also featured in the ASHA Voices episode about career changes, this SOP decided to make a move that had been on her mind for a long time when she saw an opportunity in the early days of the pandemic. My name is Tana Neufeld. I am trained as a speech-language pathologist, and I'm currently acting as director of Accessible. And it is a nonprofit focused on supporting communicators and families with complex communication needs who use AAC. That's accessible, spelled with a capital A-A-C at the beginning to highlight the nonprofit's focus on augmentative and alternative communication. 
I opened my nonprofit about two years ago and decided to do that because I really wanted to take what I knew as a clinician and what I felt uniquely qualified to do and share that information with other professionals and with families and communicators in a way that was really accessible to them, both financially and by offering it in the virtual and remote space of an online website. Tana began to see the possibility of running the nonprofit virtually as so many people were becoming familiar with connecting online because of the pandemic. Before, I might have made a lot of excuses as to why I wouldn't pursue a virtual experience like this. But with COVID, everybody became comfortable and it was a great opportunity to really make these ideas come to life. When she decided to start the nonprofit, Tana was coming to it with experience as a clinician working in private practice. The experience and skills Tana gained from that work prepared her for this new phase in her career. But there was still more to learn. I mean, there's obviously a lot of challenges in doing something new, especially something that's not clinical when I was trained to be a clinician. So I think a lot of the business side was a little intimidating. How would I make sure that I created the right tax documents? And how could I make sure that I was presenting my nonprofit in a way that was in line with rules and regulations? So some of those boring but super important things were really intimidating at first. Tana wrote a vision statement and a mission statement, and she made plans to meet her goals. She turned to mentors to get answers and gain confidence. I just tried to get people on my team that could support me with skills and talents that they had in those areas and did my best to research things um, kind of as I went along and just had faith in the process a little bit. Today, Tana says she's found that she's able to implement ideas that wouldn't have been possible in other settings she'd previously worked in. I don't have a lot of the financial hurdles of billing insurance and maintaining a productivity demand. And so I can be really creative and can do things that I didn't feel I was able to do for families and kids when I was in direct clinic work in my other settings. One of the things I really love about my nonprofit right now is I'm able to donate my time as a provider and my skills as an AAC specialist to both coaching professionals and coaching families who are looking for guidance with AEC for their children right now. At the end of her conversation, I asked Tana what she might want to share with other SLPs interested in making a change in their career. She had two lessons to share. One, just like with any business, starting a nonprofit takes a lot of time and effort and creativity and reiteration. And if your heart is not really at the core of what you're doing, it will be difficult to stay motivated. And a second takeaway. As an SLP, it's tempting to box yourself in as only having one set of skills. And what I really learned from opening this nonprofit is that I have a lot of soft skills and a lot of skills that are not directly related to being a clinician that really help this nonprofit be successful and feel really satisfying to be a part of. Tana says she's increasing her focus on accessible in 2023, turning her private practice into a social enterprise. That private practice, Summit AAC and Autism Services, will financially support Accessible's mission and projects. Find a link to the full episode that featured the past two stories on the blog post for this episode of Highlights. That's at on.asha.org slash podcast. And speaking of AAC, look for a new episode of the podcast in two weeks. I'll be joined by an SLP and an autistic advocate. Guests discuss their research into why some autistic people choose to use AAC, and they tell us why they are highlighting the importance of choice and access in relation to AAC. 
Asha Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the Asha Leader Magazine. Support for Asha Voices comes from Power Diary, the complete practice management solution. Join the demo today for a complete overview of the system and how it can benefit you and your practice. Visit www.powerdiary.com and click demo from the main navigation. Thanks for listening. I'm Janie Gray, and this is Asha Voices.